Welcome everybody to another Wealthy Podcast. Today we have the chairman, co-founder of Wealthy, the philosopher, armchair expert, economist, and stock analyst, a regular guest on ABC, SBS, Sky News, and my business partner, friend, and confidant, Peter Esho. Thank you for joining us today, mate. It's been a little while. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me back. You're doing a fantastic job on the podcast, Dom, and I'm really looking forward to our chat today. So thank you. Uh, I like catching up with you intermittently just because if we leave it a little bit of time, we've got enough to talk about. I feel like currently some of the best stuff that I've been reading out of your articles, it gives me a really good worldly view, like a, a, a macro perspective on what's actually happening. On a, on a local scale, I feel like the prop, the Australian property market is pretty strong. We've had three months of positive price growth, but a lot of the fear out there is still coming from what happens outside the Australian borders. And what I watch from your, um, your regular update on the Esho research, so anyone that's on Substack, check out Peter's um, regular articles, is you're watching a number of different things. You watch commodity prices, you're watching different um, advancements in technology, you're watching global political affairs. What are you seeing out there that we should probably be paying attention to? So the way I like to think about my, my investments, um, my investment style is very macro. And macro is when you kind of stand back and have a look at the big picture. Um, it's not the perfect way because sometimes you can look at things in a too big perspective and form views that don't necessarily trickle down to the individual markets. But it's a it's a style that I like. And you know, macro investing is all about watching interest rates. Really, if if you were to summarize it, it's about interest rates, and it's not even about interest rates today, but the direction of interest rates in the future. Um, and real estate is an asset class, particularly residential real estate, that kind of moves with that curve. Um, a lot of people think real estate is about the bricks and mortar, and it kind of is, but it's also kind of not. It's about real estate investing is about knowing where you are on the interest rate cycle, because then that dictates what's happening in the market, who's pressure selling, who's buying overheated prices, you know, when there's availability of credit out there in the market, it drives a lot of different asset classes and real estate is no different. So that's how I, that's the prism that I'm kind of like viewing things, Dom. And we can talk, I guess, about where we are or where I think or where the data is indicating we are in that big cycle. It's a really good way of looking at things. Um, I prefer starting with the macro perspective because that gives you the longer term view. And when you're, you're we're, tra we're not trading or day trading property, um, and having that longer perspective is where all the real value is because most people out there are looking at what happens today and tomorrow. And, you know, the type of stuff that you're often reporting or talking about is interest rates in, in the long-term bond yields and three and five-year fixed rates. And these are all indicative of where the market's going. What are you seeing out there? Do you think that the current market's um, strength is fair or reflective of where we're going or is this just another little hot box microcosm that shouldn't be it shouldn't be doing what it is this is this not fair uh, market value so i'm kind of at the worldview at the moment that central banks and governments realize that they went too hard during the pandemic uh, they prepared for um, armageddon and that didn't really translate 
and we can look back and say maybe it was the vaccines, maybe whatever. It, it, it was a, a health pandemic and the financial response in hindsight now seems disproportionate to um, the economic reality. So what happened is they flooded the system with cash. They went really hard. They panicked. And then when it, we came out of it, they panicked at how fast we bounced back. So there's an adjustment period. And I think I'm leaning towards the view now that the best way to stop inflation, the best way that they can kind of like contain it because inflation is a, a big problem and it's hard to stop. It's like a steam train, right? And that steam train has been traveling and getting faster and faster. And you can't just slam the brakes. You have to gradually slow it down or like an airplane that lands, there's reverse thrust. It doesn't just land and stop. So we're in that process now where they're trying to like put the brakes on, but they don't want it to like crash, right? They don't want it to come to a grinding hop. They want to like gradually get that down. And I think they don't mind a crisis. I think they're at the point where they're like, you know, a crisis will have an impact. Uh, a banking crisis, we'll see banks go broke, a run on money, there'll be, you know, liquidity issues, but it will stop inflation. And that's what they're kind of like, all focused on now stopping inflation. So I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at, at it and saying, okay, well, central banks are just going to do whatever it takes to stop inflation. And at some point, they're going to blow something up. And for me, that's going to be kind of like the turning point, the point in the cycle where we've peaked. And then after that, obviously, rates are going to have to moderate because we just can't sustain an environment. There's just too much debt out there in the world, private, public debt, for interest rates to continue rising. You look at Australia, for example, where we live and work and invest. And if we have a look at the size of our national debt and the interest rates that are prevalent in the market, more and more of our budget is going to go towards debt servicing. And it's unsustainable for rates to keep rising given where our GDP is, our population is and everything else. So I'm looking through the valley and saying at some point, something's going to crack crack the system but until we get there rates are probably going to nudge higher and then they're going to peak so there's a lot in there where you're saying that we're currently currently look the central banks are wanting things to break and a lot of people out there watching listening are scared of things breaking and the implications of that does that mean the property market crashes 20 percent um, what does a break look like to you and what do you what are some of the symptoms that we should be watching for? Okay, so I see a big picture interest rate breaking things story, right? Then the average person listening to this is, okay, what does that mean for my job? What does that mean for my investments of which real estate is probably a large chunk, either the family home or the real estate portfolio? They're two different things. Right. So the real estate um, asset class, the residential real estate asset class is very different in different markets, but it all kind of flows and follows this interest rate cycle. When rates are cheap, we have you know strong price growth. When rates go up, it kind of slows down. The other variable for real estate is supply. And usually what happens when debt is cheap, you get a lot of supply. And when debt is expensive, you get less supply. The issue for residential real estate in this cycle is that when debt was cheap, we were going through a pandemic, right? The, the economy was shutting down. When debt was cheap, construction workers weren't going to work because they were put on hold, everything closed down. 
So this cycle that we've just been through from a supply perspective is very different. We are coming out of this cycle with a few years where we really went backwards, not even held ground. And now we're only starting to readjust and the cost of debt has gone up. So I think that's what's protected residential real estate prices. That's why people aren't selling their homes because to sell your home, you either have to buy something new, there's less new stuff being created, or you have to go into the rental market. So you say, I'll sell the home, I'll take money, I'm sick of paying a mortgage, I'll go and rent for a few years and wait for rates to go down. The rental market in a lot of places is worse than paying a higher mortgage. So that's why a lot of homeowners are locked in. So from a real estate perspective, that's what's protected the market. But we haven't really seen gains in real estate. We just have seen the market fall a little bit, come back, and now it's sitting, sitting in what I call a freeze. Obviously, different markets are going to behave in different ways, but that's kind of like my general view on residential real estate at the moment, particularly in Australia. Yeah, and, and I guess the other part that I was going to ask you is Australia is... Um, obviously been quite lucky for what, 20 or 30 years, lucky, bit of good management. And we've kind of weathered a lot of the big global economic shocks that have happened to us. We found resources, we had superannuation, we had a number of things that protected us. Do you see, or can you do, what are your thoughts on some of the bigger global economic shocks, like the changes that are happening in the U S and, you know, what implications could that have, you know, medium to long term on Australia? With golden soil and wealth to toil, our home is good by sea. It's in our national anthem, right? Our, our fiscal position and our wealth position as Australians is written in our national anthem. And it's basically an acknowledgement that one, we're an island. So when you're an island, you don't have borders with other countries or you don't have land borders. And that means that you don't have to overspend on defense. And when you don't overspend on defense because you're fighting your neighbors, that means you can spend money elsewhere. So our fiscal system is in a pretty good position because we don't have to waste money on defense. And also we have resources in the ground that are always in demand and we're exporting them and they help our fiscal position. They help the government bring in tax revenue to then even, even things out. So that's where we are as Aussies, um, you know, for whatever reason, that's where we are. We're in a really, really good position. Your, your, your question um, in terms of um, the big factors overseas we're coming to the point where we're starting to acknowledge as a as an investment market, um, as a global society, that the US is broke, right? The United States is broke. And that's just that's not a throwaway line that's politically driven or sour grapes or whatever. There's no political angle to that. That is purely factual. If you have a look at the United States debt position and the way that that's continued to grow over the past 20 years, they are in a position where they don't know how they're going to pay down their debt. And they're not even at the point of, of paying down debt. They're actually arguing as we speak about how to increase their debt limit. And every few years, they're coming out and having to increase that limit. And the best analogy I can draw is like a problem gambler that's drawn up all their mortgage, drawn up all their credit cards, drawn up all their personal loans, 
And now they're, you know, trying to extend uh, their personal loan from fifty to sixty thousand dollars so that they can pay their rent. If the debt ceiling gets increased in the United States, it just means that they're going to have to borrow more money until they get to the next ceiling. So what does that mean? That means that a lot of other countries at the moment are starting to change the way they think about the United States and their position. Now, you get this perspective in Australia more than you probably get it in other parts of the world. And this is where I am a little bit more biased. So in this part of the conversation, people can disagree based on their political ideology. I'm starting to see that places like India, for example, there's a big shift there and they're starting to move into more self-reliance and they're starting to see that AI is coming. There's a shift away from China and they've got an opportunity and inter uh, intergenerational opportunity now to become players in the global market. We're seeing Saudi Arabia, for example, they recently did a deal with Iran. They've been foes for so long. Um, you know, for centuries, they've been frozen. They're coming together and working together. We're seeing uh, Latin America, countries in Latin America, re-look at their economies and they've got debt and they've got all these structural problems and they're rethinking how they can start trading together as a block. We're seeing South Africa changing. So the, the alliance of the aggravated is now starting to change and respond to the United States, which is still the largest economy in the world, the intellectual superpower, the military superpower, but a superpower that's broke. And so I think what that means is that there's going to be more innovation. You're going to see things like crypto continue to get um, money poured into it. And there's going to be eventually a flow away from US debt and US dollars into other stuff. It's not going to happen overnight but I really do believe that it's going to happen maybe when you and I are old men. It's a really, really good answer. And some of the things that I want to just draw attention to is the American government, the American economy, what you've just said there is they are broke. Now, people are saying, well, you know, what if they default on their loans? And you've basically highlighted that they're not going to default. They'll keep on printing more money and increasing the amount of debt, but what they've softly signaled to everybody is that they are broke, regardless of whether or not they're repaying their debts. They just keep on repaying their debts with borrowed money. So they're basically telling everybody we're fucked. Yep. And the global economy is now starting to think about move, or well, they are moving away from you know, uh, the American dollar being the global reserve or the 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 um the, the reserve currency, and people like Ray Dalio have been talking about that for a long long time, and China is now that new superpower that's coming to contest it. But in a, on a larger scale, all of these independent nations, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, they're all starting to come together and looking at resources and looking at other ways to innovate, and it just it is in a time of abundance. It is a time of innovation. And we're not so reliant upon what happens in America because people are simply moving away from it. One thing I also liked is that you're, you're pointing to the fact that money is then going to start moving away from cash or moving away from the US dollar. It's going to start moving away from um, non-secure or, or assets that are going to be impacted by inflation and they're starting to flee towards what gold or silver or commodities or 
cryptocurrency. And one of those other things is real estate. And that could be one of those things that does underpin a lot of people's wealth. Yeah. Lots, lots to unpack there, Peter. Yeah. And look, I don't know the answer, right? I don't know what happens or the best thing to buy um, or what the immediate trade is. But what I do know is that, um, you know, hard assets, finite assets uh, are going to be places where people continue to park their money. So even if you have a look at sort of the Australian dollar or the currency that we have, um, a lot of our trade flows are tied to the US dollar. Our banks, you know, when I go out and get a mortgage, my bank um, relies about 30 or 40% of their funding comes from offshore, offshore markets. And so, you know, it's going to flow through. And for me as a personal investor, as a simple personal investor, managing my money, my family's money, I want to make sure I'm invested in things that are tangible, things that are scarce, things that will be around, regardless of what happens to paper money or paper currency. Um, and just what, you know, one of the things that um, I forgot to mention, Dom, back to, you know, the US and and kind of like world, where the world is moving Um if you have a look at what happened in France, so France over the past couple of months has been having riots. People have been rioting on the street because the pension age is being adjusted or it's being changed. And the French fiscal position, the, the French position is a lot better than the US position, right? So the French are actually going out on a limb at the expense of riots in the street to fix their books, to get their house in order. And they're nowhere near as bad as what the American fiscal position and Americans are just fighting over increasing their, their debt limit. So to me, as an investor, I don't want to be sitting in, in cash. Um, I'll be sitting in, you know, having some cash now because that gives me optionality. That gives me a bit of a return. But from a wealth management perspective, I want to invest in things that generate income for me. And I want to invest in things that hold their value. Really good advice. Now, I want to just do a slight shift away from the big macro picture into a more of a personal one. Um, you and I have been running wealthy for a long while now. People have been watching the show, paying attention to the business. It's been growing um, very quickly. And I wanted to ask you a, a more of a personal question and say, you know, the business has shifted gears. It is growing a lot. What do you attribute a lot of the, the local personal successes that you have had and we have had in the business to what are some of the attributes or things that you think we've done well that have brought us to where we are today uh, i think the lesson i've learned over the past nine years of being in business is uh, people uh, are the single most important factor um, so not only do i have a great business partner in you um, which is really important not everybody can have a business partner, but when you have a good business partner, it's, um, you know, it just makes life so much easier, but we've got a great team. We've got great people who turn up every day, have passion in what they're doing. And when you have passion in what you're doing and you care about what you're doing, your clients feel that. And a business is all about solving a problem and providing a service. We're in a service business, so we don't manufacture goods. Um, so when, when you have good people that care, um, that means you can go out and work with clients that care too. And when you have that synergy together, you can provide a really good service, a really good experience. And that's the basis for business. If you've got clients that don't care and employees or a team culture that doesn't care, 
you're only kind of like ripping money out for a short period of time, but everyone's going to go somewhere else eventually. So to me, it it's cliche, you know, but services is, a, is about people. And to me, people are the driving force in everything that we do. Good answer. I really, I, I agree. I think that it comes back to people obsessing over your clients, obsessing over the service. And then if your team feel that, um, integrity and feel that commitment to your clients and what you're trying to deliver and they agree and get on board, then the clients then also feel it. And it's a, a really positive feedback loop between the clients, your team and the business. And you can sort of see that growth as we go. The flywheel gets turns a lot faster. Now, another more personal question is what has changed for you personally between when you started and now maybe some habits or mindsets you know, aside from the gray hairs and, um, you know, you, you getting better looking, what are some of the things that have changed for you personally or, or, you know, mentally that have you'll attribute to what you're doing today and where you're going into the future? I think the world we're in is different. So sometimes you don't feel the world change because you're kind of in it and, you know, you're living your life. I kind of see it through my children and, you know, as, as your children grow and as my children grow, we can look at them and kind of like compare to when we were children, what the world was like. And, um, you know, when our parents were children, what the world was like. And, you know, we're, we're in this we're in this thing that's constantly changing. So my daughter, for example, I was talking to her yesterday. She's like, Dad, I'm using chat GPT. And I'm like, that's fantastic. I'm actually happy. When I grew up, you know, using the internet or using resources that weren't kind of like the status quo was seen as cheating. But to me, I look at that and I'm like, I'm really glad that you're embracing technology today. That's going to be mainstream technology in three or four years time, because that's going to give you an edge. I'm really happy that you're innovating. And so, you know, we're in a very different changing world. We're running a very different race. We've gone from running on a on a grass racetrack to running in an indoor stadium to running on different surfaces. So um, for me, that's been the biggest change, just looking around, seeing the world. We're not in offices anymore. Um, you know, we're all kind of like working behind these weird screens and building relationships and scaling. You know, people are watching this uh, that have probably never met you and I. Um, so it's it, we're moving to this, you know, new, <laughs> new, new reality. And you've got to enjoy it. You've got to embrace it. And you've got to make sure that you stop and you care about yourself because you know you have to care about yourself in order to care about your team in order to care about your clients so self-care and mental fitness is also very important so one of the things that's really resonated with you recently is the fact that we're living in a more dynamic environment than ever but then also this new sense of sort of self-care rather than you know um the old 90s or boomer mentality of you know work yourself to oblivion it's kind of flipped you know our bosses would work themselves to oblivion and you know develop negative um habits traits issues health problems you're now embracing technology embracing the world in front of you but then also looking in and taking care of yourself because if I'm strong, then I can be strong for my team, my business and everyone around me. 
yeah, and I can just live a happy life because we do all these things for a reason. You know, we don't work because we we have to. We work because we want to. We build businesses. We invest. You know, everything is done for a reason. And, um, you know, previously in the past, people would smoke cigarettes. They'll drink alcohol. They'll do all kinds of things as coping mechanisms, right? And now we've got education. We've got science telling us that these things aren't good for us. And we've also got science telling us, hey, you know, the, there are things that you should be doing like breathing, eating better, taking care of your posture, um, you know, putting different minerals into your body. Um, and that's different. Like, you know, if I talk to my parents about that, that's, that's foreign. If I talk to a generation before, that's like, you know, that's whatever, but that's my reality because, you know, in, in, in 20 or 30 years, that's going to become the norm. And the same way that cigarettes used to be normal and they used to be advertised on TV and now they're not, you know, there, there's going to be a shift in society. So you got to take yourself, you know, living a wealthy life is about taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. Love it. Hey, tell me about a time when you've made a mistake that informed all the decisions going forward big life decision, something that you just fucked up and you're like, I've learned something from this. Ooh, where do I start? So many mistakes. So many right. mistakes. Um, I think the, the, as you grow up, you kind of, the, the biggest mistake I think is not um, acknowledging your mistakes. And it's, it's not, um, putting your hand up to say you effed up. And a lot of times in the past, you know, I've let pride get the better of me. And in hindsight, it's a really, really dumb thing to do. And admitting your mistakes, showing your vulnerabilities is actually really liberating. So, um, you know, there's a balance between confidence and not selling yourself short, but you can go the other way where um, you don't show your vulnerabilities, you hold everything up and the weight of the world sits on your shoulders. And then that manifests in other problems. Um, so yeah, my mistakes have been, I've let stress get the better of me that's manif manifested into, you know, as you get older, an impact on your body, uh, a biophysical impact, and I've paid the price for that. So, um, I think, you know, letting it out, um, working with someone, a trusted advisor, talk therapy, you know, all these things that were taboo and kind of like not manly or like, you know, you don't talk about I think it's important to have them out in the open. And that's for me, you know, as I turn 40 next year, my 40 to 50s are going to be a bit more about focusing on that. 40 to 50 is going to be about longevity and living to 140 and 50. Maybe. Healthily. Health, yeah. We'll see how we go. Okay. And what's one advice that you'd give new investors and homeowners so they don't fuck up their next property purchase or investment? Um, learn the skill of compromise. Compromise is a skill that's very important to have in your DNA, in your structure, in your personality. Um, we all want to win, right? Human nature, we, we've all survived. Um, we all have a survival bias and we all want um, more, more, more. But there's an art in letting go and taking losses, um, the, the thing is you want to win big and you want to lose small and you got to learn to lose small. You got to learn to take small losses. You can't win everything. You can't hold on to everything. 
And if you don't learn to lose small, you're going to lose big. And I've seen it so many times. People that don't know how to lose small end up losing big because they're always chasing a win, win, win. So compromise when it comes to investing. If you're investing in stocks, you've got to compromise that you're going to get things wrong and you've got to sell and let go. And you've also got to learn that when you're onto a winner to let it ride, not be tempted to sell that investment. Same with real estate. You buy real estate, it's a painful process. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to break. You're going to have losses along the way. You've got to have the maturity to say, that's okay. I will compromise a $1,000 cost because I know that this asset will put a million dollars in my pocket over the next 30 or 40 years. So um, have that sense of compromise, build that compromise muscle, and you will be so successful in your investments. That's my advice to young investors. Really, really good advice. I feel like the temptation is to want everything today. And if you can compromise on some things, if you can take those little emotional losses and look at the things that don't matter, that's where you'll make some really, really big strides in your career. The little bullshit things that you can cut out today can have an exponential difference into the future, especially if you're looking at that first, second investment or buying your own home. I know that you know a lot of new investors want that one property to do everything or they want to buy their own home. But if you let go of that dream for now and you can buy something that's going to perform well as an investment, then you'll live a much fuller, happier life and you can use those investments in the future to go buy your dream home. Um, so I really like the idea of compromise, cutting out the crap that you don't need so that you can do something better or something that really matters into the future. Good advice. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. I know that you're a busy man. Um, thank you for all that you're doing. You're an amazing business partner and um, we'll wrap up the show today. Thank you everyone for listening. Have an awesome time happy investing happy house hunting if you have any questions reach out to peter at peter esho and i'll talk to you all later if you haven't bought dom's book make sure you go out and buy it go buy four or five copies fucking get in there and give it to all your friends